There is one thing that God cannot do, and we're very glad it's true about Him. And that's next, right here on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I say let this world know me by your love. It's true, there's one thing that God cannot do, and that's lie. The implications are profound in addition to being wonderfully reassuring as we'll learn today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. And we're so glad you've joined us. We begin a new book of the Bible today, the New Testament letter of Paul to Titus. In chapter 1, we'll be reminded of the responsibility of proclaiming God's Word, along with the qualifications for leaders. But connected to this teaching is the truth that God cannot lie. Pastor Ed begins in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which is in accord to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So this section of Scripture contains a verse that the first time I read it, God cannot lie, I thought, why is that there? Why is that even necessary? Why does Paul even bring up that subject? It seems to me that it's self-evident that God, of course, doesn't lie. Why place the statement even in the text? But as I grew in the Lord and over the years, I began to see in the Bible and everyday life that most people don't believe that simple statement. Most people in our world don't believe that God is truth and that God is incapable of lying. It goes completely against his nature. It's not something that he even considers. You probably think also that it would seem unnecessary. It's kind of an extra addition. But when you look back, even in the Scripture, we see that the sons of Adam and daughters of Adam and Eve are still struggling with what God says as being truth. 
it happened in the garden. You remember the story that in Genesis chapter 3, God said, don't eat of that fruit. And a serpent showed up and said to Eve, did God really say? And she said, yeah, God really said that if you eat of this, you'll die. And then Satan told the first lie recorded in the Bible, you will not die. And because Eve wanted to believe that she could have what looked good to her, and that still goes on today, she wanted to believe that God lied. And she tested it and found out that God hadn't lied. And as you work your way through the Bible, we find that Old Testament and New, that in the days of Noah, God said, you guys got to turn or it's going to rain a long time. Can you tread water? That kind of a thing. And they said, oh, that's not true. That's not true. We're fine. Things have always been this way. It's going to always be that way. But Noah was speaking the truth, and God didn't lie. And then you go to Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you work your way through the New Testament, and really all the way up to today, people struggle with this book or Bible that God doesn't lie. Whatever God says comes to pass. That's why it's very important that God doesn't lie, because whatever he says happens. You remember that let there be light statement? <laughs> and a big bang took place. And the ramifications of that are still going on to this day. There was light and there was a big bang. So God cannot lie because anything he says will come into being. Hmm. God's nature is one of selfless love for others. His nature is not to deceive, it's who he is. It is his nature for God to be truthful and to never even attempt to deceive. Now, that should be very comforting when you think of the consequences of that, what comes out of that. God promises will happen. So all of a sudden we see the importance of why Paul added it to this section, and it's really a big thought. It's in the Old Testament also, and we'll see it's in the New Testament. But that's where we're going. First, a little history about the one who received this letter, Titus. Titus was living on the island of Crete, it says, when he received this letter. Now, he's mentioned 13 times in the Bible, but we don't know when Paul and Titus went together to the island of Crete. But there were churches there that he was supposed to organize. Now, we know that from the book of Acts, that on the day of Pentecost, there were people there from the island of Crete that were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they heard the 120 speaking in a tongue that they understood, the Cretan language. The area is 156 miles long, this island, about 35 miles at the widest point, and some of you uh, here in the church were there just a few weeks ago. While we were following the footsteps of Paul, we stopped for a short time at the island of Crete. It, it's really a beautiful place. It was hard to follow Paul, you can see. Uh, it's beautiful, the, the water is stunning. And it was here that 
Titus began to organize churches, and the Church of Titus, literally, that's the name of it, and they claim that the foundation goes all the way back to the first century. It's a mountainous island. Uh, it's very fertile. It's beautiful. And lots of little churches. There's a couple of big churches, but most of them are this size. So it's to this island Paul and Titus came, and Titus is there to bring some organization to these group of churches that evidently were struggling to get along. This first chapter breaks up into three parts. Sharing God's word, the first three verses, that's what Paul says he's doing. That's what he wants Titus to do, and that's what he wants you and I to do, that we're to proclaim it, declare it to other people. And then Titus's charge, four and five, for him personally, and then the qualifications of good leadership in six through nine. So we're going to work our way through this short section, nine verses, but we're going to focus on that statement, God cannot lie. Let's start in verse one. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Ooh, that's a mouthful. It's not really very clear in this translation. Here's a more modern translation. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent to bring faith to those whom God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. So Paul says, first of all, that he's a bondservant, a slave, literally the Greek word Doulos means someone who indentured themselves to another. Now, our history, American history, is filled with bad slavery. Not that there's any kind of good slavery, but this is much different than what we know about from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. This bondservant was a title given to a person in the Jewish culture who had overextended themselves financially. They owed more money than they could pay. And so, the law, Deuteronomy, allowed them to sell themselves into slavery for a limited amount of time. In other words, they owed more money than they could make, and so they were going backwards, so they just took themselves, if they were married, their wives and children, into someone who was wealthy's house, who paid their debts off, and they were giving themselves six years. Because on the seventh year, then they would be set free. So everybody understood that. It was clearly put there in the law. But that's what Paul is comparing himself to, that he is a slave to God. But it's for life. But that was a provision also in the Old Testament, that if you loved the person that had paid your debt and you wanted to continue to live with them, why would anybody want to do that? Well. There was no social security, there was no safety net, and so in that day, it brought security to a family. So if you found someone who had paid your debt and loved you, loved your family, took good care of you and treated you with respect, you could go to that person and ask them to become a permanent bond servant to them. And then, according to Deuteronomy 16, this would happen. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family as well off with you, then take an awl and pierce it through his ear lobe 
into a door, pinning to a door, but you take it back out. And he will become your servant for life. Ooh, sounds very strange to us. But in fact, that's what you do when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Now, they would put a gold ring in that servant's ear. In every place he went, people would notice the ring, and they would know that his master loved him, and he loved his master. You're listening to Pastor Ed Ray describing an Old Testament picture of the Christian life. Now with part two of today's Grow in Grace and more on the significance of the bondservant and what it represents, once again, here's Pastor Ed. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have been bought with a price. The price, the most extravagant, expensive thing in the universe, the blood of God the Son. God loved you so much that he died for you. Oh, yes, everyone around, God would that none would perish, that all would come to salvation and forgiveness. But God loved you so much that he paid a tremendous price so that you could wear a ring, if you would, in your own ear, metaphorically, that you would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, which literally means a little Christ. And people will know that you love your master and your master loves you. And that's what Paul says with a simple statement, that I am a servant, a bondservant, a slave of God. And I chose it just like you chose it. Or maybe you're here this morning, you haven't chose it, and that's something you need to do. That's how you begin a relationship with God the Son as you choose to surrender your life to him. Forgive my sins, Lord, take my life. So, we could pray and go home, because that's really the whole message here. But we'll do the rest of it here, too. So he said he's a servant of God, a slave of God, but he's also an apostle of God, and that word means sent one, sent out. So he's a slave to God, but he is going out to do something very specific. And the word means someone sent out that usually talks about a relationship with a king that he's a representing, he's a royal emissary, you would say, if you use this word. It was common in that day. And as his position of an apostle, he is giving out a message. He'll talk about it in just a minute. And it goes to certain people, to according to the faith of God's elect, according to the furtherance of the faith of God's elect. See, God would... God's desire, God's will, is that he would fill up eternity. That every person on the planet, seven billion of us, would surrender to him and spend eternity. Heaven's real big, okay? There's not a crowding problem. But his desire is that we would all go to heaven. That's the message. God's choice is, but you must elect to accept his promise to you. We'll come back to that. The truth, which is according to godliness. When you acknowledge, accept truth, truth, reality, the way things really are, not the way we'd like it to be, the, the things that are really true, when you accept that, it accords, it brings, it acknowledges, it sets into your life godliness. Don't let that word scare you. 
Godliness is the result of God being in you. You see, Bea, a respect for God comes when you surrender to God and he takes up residence. What? The Old Testament predicted it, that there was a new covenant that was coming. In Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, it describes this new covenant, this new agreement, this new contract between God and humanity, you and I. And then Jesus, the last night, I hope you received communion, but when Jesus took the cup that night, he took the bread first and said, this is my body broken. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood of a new covenant. He had already taught his disciples that this new covenant was coming. He called it new wine. You can't put it in old wineskins. You can't put it in the structure of the Old Testament. It's a new covenant. And it's based upon what God did through Jesus Christ for us. The result of that new covenant is that we would have heart surgery. What? Yes, old heart, hard heart, heart of stone taken out, and a new heart, a sensitive heart, an understanding heart, a heart that was directed towards other people, breaking out of our selfishness, that we would no longer use people and love things. We'll love people and just use things and enjoy them. So new heart, a new spirit put within us, it says, the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Romans says, dwells in you. So this is the new covenant. You get a new heart, the Holy Spirit takes up residence to you and does stuff. What stuff? He'll cause you to walk in his ways. That's God's prediction of what the new covenant would be. And so when you and I surrender to God, you may not even be aware of this, but the Holy Spirit came inside you and he's changing you the way you think, your value structure, your morals, your ethics. It's a result of him in you. Not of you saying, well, I'm going to make some really strong New Year's resolutions this year. <laughs> You're saying, I can do it. You can't. I know that by my age, by this time in life, I know that even though I can make really strong New Year's resolutions, they're all done by mm, the 15th. God, unless you change me from the inside, I can't change. That's the right prayer. I'm relying on you. That's God's truth bringing about godliness in you. It's a process. It's also called sanctification. God slowly sets you aside. You're saved instantaneously. Justification, just as if you never sinned. But you're sanctified, being set aside a little bit more every day. He does the work. He gets the credit for it. Godliness, godliness is living an extraordinary life. Actually, it's an ordinary life lived in an extraordinary way by the power of God in you. You get to affect people's eternity. Wow. You get to change their final destination for all of time. Time without end. Infinity. No finite. No measurable. Beyond. Like Toy Story. <laughs> Infinity and beyond. That is the definition of eternity. So that's the first verse. This is going well. Second verse. 
in hope of eternal life. Oh, no, it's that shaky? No, no, no. Th this Greek word is much stronger. Elpis, it's in the Greek language. And it means confident expectation. It's going to happen. You know it. I know it. Believe it. Trust in it. In hope. It's not just longing for something. We use this wishy-washy word in English, something that's vague. It has this nebulous wishing for something to happen. Oh, I hope. No, this word means it's going to happen. I'm anticipating it. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to happen. It was promised by God. It's guaranteed. He said it. I believe it. That settles it. This hope of eternal life, eternal life. What's eternal life? Age-abiding life. What's age-abiding life? It's life that begins now on this earth and goes through infinity and beyond goes through eternity. Eternal life is lasting life. It's life that starts with a surrender to God. God does these changes we just talked about, and he begins to change it from the inside. Here we have it. It is eternal life, not just in the future, but for our daily existence today. But then Paul says this statement, God who cannot lie promised before time began. Whew. That's a mind blower in the other direction. Time without end forward, but it also goes backwards. In fact, that's what the Hebrew word means. They saw it as parallax. It's the word for things beyond what you can see. If you stand on a freeway going across the desert, the Tim, out in the middle of nowhere on the way to beautiful life, if you go out and stand in the middle of the dotted line, you wouldn't stand there very long. But if you look down it, the edges of the road come together. That's the Hebrew word for beyond the vanishing point. So God decided from beyond the vanishing point backwards that time had a beginning. That's what this says. Before time began, he said something which, since he can't lie, is going to happen. God does not lie. It's sometimes called the immutability of God by theologians. Big word that just means he doesn't mutate. Mutation is to change, right? Unlike chromosomes, he doesn't change. It is speaking about the integrity of his word. Integer means one. Integrity is one thing that he says. Because God himself, hang with me a minute here, because God himself is truth and is the source of truth, it is impossible for him to say anything untruthful. That's what Jesus said, I am the truth. It's impossible for God to not speak the truth. That's what this is saying. In Numbers 23, 19, it says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do so? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Immutability means that God never changes his purposes. Oh, he's able to move to correct things that we have made a mess of. His promises are conditional, if-then statements, but he has the capability of correcting any mistake we make. Aren't you glad? that we come and we confess and he forgives us and he moves on. God can and does respond according to our choices. 
His ultimate final critical goal will be accomplished, getting you to heaven. That's his purpose. The creator of the universe has purpose in his heart to get you into eternity with him. A wonderful and extremely comforting truth Pastor Ed Ray is emphasizing today on growing grace, on what God is wanting and able to do. You need only believe, and there's good reason to do so, for God cannot lie. Did you miss a portion of the message, or was there a part you wanted to hear again? Just go online to thepackinghouse.org for a replay. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. That's thepackinghouse.org, or listen to us on Apple Podcasts. One more option is to call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Grow in Grace is made possible through the generosity of our listeners, and we're thankful for each and every gift that comes our way. If you've been blessed by the teaching you've received through this radio program and would like to support what we're doing in this new year, please give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. And as a way of saying thank you, we'll send you Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This book brings together what Lewis saw as the fundamental truths of Christianity. And in it, he sets out to defend the beliefs that believers through the ages hold in common. And I know you'll be encouraged by what he has to say. So again, you can ask for your copy of Mere Christianity when you give today. Give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. This program is brought to you by the Packinghouse Christian Fellowship and online at packinghouse.org. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the cripple stand, singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your 